Well, welcome everyone. So glad that you are here to worship together. How good, how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. And we, we know the joy of this. And, you know, it's, it's not a good time. It's not a good time to be watching the news and reading all the headlines and all that. And that's why we come and sing songs like that last one. We can't bury our heads in the sand. We, we have eyes to see just the, the thrust, the inroads that evil wickedness makes. And, and let me remind you that if God hadn't been gracious to you and saved you, you might be out there on the front lines marching for evil right now. So let's not take the wrong position on that. But what are we to do? We're to look at our God who is unchangeable, unstoppable, immovable, great, mighty, unconquerable. And he conquers, doesn't he? He conquered you and he conquered me out of grace and out of love. And that's why we worship him. And we gather to worship him, not so that we can have ammo against the enemy, but we can have love for our enemies and pray for them and go out with the gospel to find them and bring them to Christ, that they would bow their knee before him. How beautiful and how lovely that is. The Lord blesses those who bring the good news of the gospel. And the Lord wants to bless fathers here today. And he wants to bless them with his word. He wants you to come before him humbly and listen today. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to God today from his word. So I'm glad that you're here, especially glad that, that God has gathered fathers to you. Now, you may not have had a good father. You may not even be a good father. I, can't, I don't know if I can call myself a good father. I am a sinful father that God blesses and allows things to go through. He blesses Sinners like us. And God wants to work through you in your life, into your family, in your wife's life, and into outwards, into even our world. And so we need ears to hear. So let us pray as we open up the word of God to hear from him. Father, give us ears to hear. Let that not just be a repeat of last week's prayer. Give us ears to hear, God. We need to hear your voice in such a way that it penetrates through the noise of this world all around us, the distractions, the uh, things that lure us away from you. We need to hear your voice because now is the time that you need us to live for you. Our families need us to live for you as men in the home and as men in general. So please give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you've seen the headlines out there. Now, I'm going to talk about the ones that I was referring to just a minute ago. I'm talking about the ones that say 11 unbelievable facts. The fourth one will shock you. Gut doctor says, I beg Americans to throw out this vegetable. When you see these, you already have cancer. This is why you're losing money. There's a name for these types of headlines. Clickbait. Clickbait. 
Clickbait typically refers to the practice of writing sensationalized or misleading headlines in order to attract clicks on a piece of online content. It, it often relies on exaggerating claims or leaving out key information in order to encourage traffic. So in the world of online traffic, a good headline is everything. According to Peter Ketchley, the co-founder of Upworthy.com, quote, the difference between a good headline and a bad line, bad headline can be just massive. It's not a rounding error. When we test headlines, we see 20% difference, 50% difference, 500% difference. A really excellent headline can make something go viral, end quote. Would you click on a headline that says this? This secret will maximize blessing in your life. Or how about this one? Do you know this key element that makes every man a powerful blessing to his family? Now, like you, I would probably dismiss this as just another example of clickbait. Where the, claim, where the claims are exaggerated. But if clicking on one of those two headlines linked you to Psalm 128, it would not be an exaggeration. There would be nothing misleading about it. Men, as it's Father's Day, I want to speak to you about God's perspective on the most important factor in being a blessing to your wife and your children. God puts forward this element in his word as the key to becoming a powerful blessing in your family. And the key question that you need to ask yourself is this. Is it missing from your life? All right, so what is this key factor? He tells us in Psalm 128. So follow along with me as, as we read together. How blessed... Is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, this psalm and the psalm that precedes it, Psalm 127, it presents to us a blueprint for a satisfying and fulfilling home. Psalm 127 speaks about the foundation of the home is God. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. To which Psalm 128 adds what God's blessing is then based on. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And so as you can see, Psalm 128, it is directed to everyone. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord? Fearing the Lord is foundational to life. It is the source of God's blessing. However, as you can see also, the application of this Psalm, Psalm 128, it is aimed particularly at a believing husband and father. This Psalm is Indicating that to be the kind of husband and father that will be a blessing to your wife and your children and even on out into society. 
you must fear God. Now, as many of you recall, we were just in the psalm last month for Mother's Day, where from verse 3 of Psalm 128, we looked at the fruitful and fulfilled woman. There we saw that the woman who makes pleasing God her goal will enjoy a fruitful, fulfilled life. And so in terms of the psalm's progression, that sermon, which we preached last month, that was part two. And I'm thankful that God has allowed me to fulfill the promise that I made on Mother's Day, which was to return on Father's Day to preach part one. The title of this sermon is The Father Who Fears the Lord. The Father Who Fears the Lord. And from this psalm, I want to convince you of how essential it is, men, that we fear the Lord. Because you can have a good job. And you can work hard and you can have a spacious home and you can have a great backyard. You can take fun family vacations. You can buy all the toys that thrill you. You can eat right. You can stay fit. You can be faithful to your wife. You can be present for all your kids' games. Be a helpful neighbor. Plan for retirement. Have a great insurance policy. Invest wisely. Be involved in your church. Serve wherever you can. Pay your taxes. Enjoy your grandkids. Travel the world. Then retire with plenty and live comfortably. And those are all good things. And they have their rewards. But to have all of that, and even more, but never learn the fear of the Lord, it is the height of foolishness. God reserves only contempt for the man who would, who would reject his wisdom. And he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The picture, the picture painted for those who fail to fear him, even though all these things may be true, it is a bleak picture that is filled with anguish. That same proverb that begins and tells us where knowledge begins goes on to say, To the person who rejects that, he says, you neglected all my counsel. You did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, well, then, then they will call on me. But I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Oh, you can have all that the world says that you should have, that you need to have, and you can still be an incredibly foolish man. And so that is the warning label on this sermon. Ignore it at your own risk. Our focus, though, this morning is not on the perils of lacking this fear of God, but the joy of embracing it. And I want us to see just how blessed is the family that is led by a man who desires, discerns, delights in, and develops fear of the Lord. How blessed is the family that is led by a man 
who desires, discerns, delights in, and develops a fear of the Lord. And as with my Mother's Day sermon, full disclosure, this sermon is largely from the writings of Dr. Wayne Mack about the family. And so I'm once again, I'm passing on the encouragement that I've gained from him. And now I want you to be encouraged as well. So before we look at what it means to fear the Lord, I, I want to first whet your appetite for it. See, God makes it abundantly clear in his word of the blessings and appropriate fear will have on you, on your wife, on your children. It will make you appear appealing to your family. So we, first of all, we need to desire a fear of the Lord. We need to desire a fear of the Lord. A fear of God, it will make you more effective as a man and especially in your role as a husband and as a father. And living with a God-fearing man, it will result in your family giving thanks for you. And for your wise and your loving and your godly leadership. But don't, don't take my word for it. Listen to what God says about those who fear him. First, God promises to instruct those who fear him in the choices that they should make. Such that they prosper in the ways that are most important. Psalm 25 says, who is the man who fears the Lord? God will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. Secondly, God promises the man who fears him will be the recipient of his goodness and protection. Psalm 31 says, how great is your goodness and which which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence and against the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in the shelter from the strife of tongues. God promises that the man who fears him and his children will experience God's compassion. Psalm 103 says, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to to do them. The man who fears him will know contentment in the Lord. Proverbs 19, 23 says the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. God hears the cries of the man who fears him and he answers him. Psalm 145 says, God will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The man who fears him will wait on the Lord with genuine hope. It says in Psalm 147, the Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. And then in Psalm 112, God lists several blessings for the man who fears him. He will love and obey the scriptures. His children will exhibit the blessings of his influence in the most important ways. He will persevere in doing what is right. He will be a source of compassion and grace and generosity to others. And he will trust in the Lord that the Lord will make him confident and courageous. See, the man who fears the Lord will, as a result... He will be prosperous, secure, compassionate, contented, prayerful, wise, hopeful, obedient, influential, gracious, confident, and courageous. I mean, we all 
have our areas where we need to grow as husbands and fathers. And the word, it is profitable to teach and reprove and correct and to train us in these ways. <clears throat> but we just, we don't just need practical tips for being better husbands and fathers. Given all the enduring good that results from it, we need to desire the fear of the Lord in our lives. But, but what is the fear of the Lord? I don't think it's our first thought to associate fear with something good. We fear things that are bad. Scary, dangerous, harmful things like fires and spiders and bullies, snarling dogs. But since the growth of our families, it depends upon our being God-fearing men. We don't want to risk being unclear. So we need to secondly discern the fear of the Lord. We need to discern the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is not a fear of being struck down by God when you sin. It's not a fear or a dread of hell hanging over your head, although that is a very real and profitable fear for the unbeliever. The fear of God is not that God's out to get you, that he is irritable or vindictive, that he's hard to get along with, because that kind of fear is heavy and oppressive. And it would only cause anxiety, dread, or terror. And that is not the sort of the way the Bible characterizes the fear of God as being a blessing. That's not a blessing. And that's not what the fear of God is. The debilitating kind of fear that we've just talked about here, it's really pictured for us in the parable of the talents that's found in Matthew 25. Now, let me just paint the picture for you. You don't have to jump over there unless you'd like to. Feel free. In that chapter, Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of three men being uh, given varying but significant amounts of the master's money to then invest on his behalf. And the assumption is, is that these stewards, they know the personality and they know the character of their Lord. And so they understand how he would have them invest his money. And the first two stewards, well, they invest accordingly and they make a profit. But fear and mistrust of his Lord is what leads the third steward not to invest the money, but to bury the money in the ground so that he can return to him the original amount that was given. And so when he was called to give an account, well, he explained his decision, his decision to do nothing by saying, he said, Master, well, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid. And so I went and I hid your talent in the ground. A talent would be the money that he gave him. And for this response and these actions, the master scolded, rejected, and even punished his steward for his lack of trust. He feared his master, and it was clear, and it was a debilitating fear. He saw him as harsh. He saw him as a vindictive tyrant 
whose demands they were unreasonable. His ways even were dishonest. This was not a fear of reverence. It was irreverent contempt. And he resented and he despised the master. He had no love or respect for him at all. His relationship with his master, it was not one of peace, but of enmity. It was one of hatred rather than love. It was one of rejection rather than faith. The fear of the steward for his master, it is not the fear of God that we see in Psalm, referred to in Psalm 128, lauded throughout the rest of Scripture. One fear will curse and injure your family. The other type of fear will bless and enrich it. And you can see how the steward's fear hindered him. It made him insecure, discontent, weak, unloving. But we see none of that from the man in Psalm 128. In fact, we see just the opposite. The fear of God in Scripture it is constructive, not destructive. It does not drive you away from God in fear, but instead it draws you to him in love. It motivates you to be responsible as opposed to being idle or lazy or indecisive like the steward in Matthew 25. The steward's fear made him concerned more about himself than his master's interests. But see, a godly fear leads to serving others and living a fruitful, joyful, and confident life. So how can we know that this debilitating, slavish, oppressive fear is nothing close to the fear of God that we find in Psalm 128? We know this because the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Such a love is known by all who have experienced the forgiveness of God through the redemption made possible in Jesus Christ. See, if you have never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation and forgiveness of sins, confessing him as Lord, the Bible says you are right now, you are in bondage to the kind of fear that the steward had of his master. But to those who who have called on God to save them. He says he has granted to you a spirit of sonship. Because God has made you his child. And you are also his heir. You are even the co-heir with Christ himself destined to be glorified with him. And every reason that would have brought God's wrath upon you, it has been removed by Christ. Through his substitutionary death. He's even given you the perfect righteousness of Christ. Meaning that God now sees you with the same delight that he sees in his perfect son. And your reasons to cower before God. In Christ they are gone. You have every reason now to rejoice in God. Leading you to have the right type of fear of God, the type of fear described in Psalm 128 that blesses you and blesses your family greatly. So what then is the fear of God? I think that's a that's a big study from the word of God. And there are a lot of ways, I think, that we can define 
what the fear of God is. I've tried to put it as simply as possible, and this could be expanded upon and nuanced in other ways, I'm sure. But the way I've defined it is very simply as a loving respect for God's greatness. A loving respect for God's greatness. It's the inevitable result of a believer's growth in his understanding of and trust in God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And it leads to a continual submission to God in humility and faith. That's where this loving respect for the greatness of God leads to. Submission to God continually in obedience and in faith. In humility and faith. Now, we can see the essence of this fear of God in a man like Moses, if we look at his life. Remember, after God uh, delivered Moses and his people from certain destruction at the hand of the Egyptians. If you were to go back and read from Exodus 15, which I'd love to do, but we don't have time, at least this morning. And you can put a little star on that and go back and read what God's what Moses sang about God. But there is where he lifted up his praise to God after everything that had happened. Remember, a helpless and defenseless Israel was trapped on the shore of the Red Sea by the most powerful nation on the earth with the most powerful military. But you know what God did. He, he parted the waters. He allowed Israel to pass through safely to the other side, thwarting the enemy, showing God's might and power and loving kindness to his people. And as you read, you you read what Moses was singing. You can see how Moses couldn't help but be gripped by the unsurpassing greatness of God. This whole encounter with God caused Moses to see him as highly exalted, majestic in power, glorious in holiness, awesome in strength, unfailing in faithfulness, abundant in mercy, unwavering in his commitment to them, completely trustworthy Absolutely sovereign and unrivaled in excellence. And the inevitable response to Moses' understanding of God, it was adoration, love, obedience. All that Moses did was controlled by this overarching view of God. And this is the fear of God of Psalm 128. We see the same illustration in the life of Abraham. God called Abraham in Isaiah 41. He called him my friend. He was referring to this close relationship that Abraham shared with God. Abraham's exalted view of God, it guided him. It it influenced his life, his family. And it did so in very significant as well as practical ways. You can read about his life. You can see that Abraham, he was willing to leave his homeland He was willing to move to an unknown place. Why? Because the Lord told him to. He said, I have blessing there for you. And so he went. We can also read how he was willing to give the best of that land to his nephew, Lot. He was content with what the Lord had given him. And so he was willing to be even taken advantage of by others. He was concerned about justice, about the rights of others He was willing to risk his own life, give of all that he had for the sake of his family. He chose to put God's will before everything else, including his own feelings and desires. And nowhere is that clearer than Abraham's willing obedience when the Lord told him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. See, 
that came much later in his life didn't it, than when we first meet Abraham. And you, you read his life, you see he was not a perfect man. And by the way, that should encourage every one of us here. Young fathers and old fathers, we see what God has done. And he brings us to places in life where we can obey him, trust him. That's what we see with Abraham. He had this big view of God and he was ready. He was ready to sacrifice Isaac. But the angel of the Lord stopped him. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God announced at that moment that what God always knew of Abraham and he could and that he was developing in Abraham. He made it clear at that moment to Abraham. Abraham feared God. And that fear of God was increasingly demonstrated in faith and in trust and in obedience. So you need only read the account of his life, right? And as I said, he was not a perfect man. And yet God called him his friend. <laughs> that, should, that should just seize your throat up like it's doing mine right now. God would call a sinner like me his friend. But remember that the New Testament also declares Abraham to be the father of our faith. In many ways. His is the kind of faith we want. It's born. From seeing the awesome greatness of God. The amazing grace and love of God. Hosea. He gives a really interesting description of it. Of this fear when he prophesies. He prophesies how the sons of Israel. Will return and seek the Lord their God. And David their king. And then he speaks of the fear of God that will be in them. He says, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. See, it is a loving respect for God's greatness that leads to a continual submission to God in humility and faith. See, this is the fear of the Lord. And discerning what the fear of the Lord is, it should lead us to thirdly then, Delight in the fear of the Lord. Delight in the fear of the Lord. Indeed, we should for the same fear that we find the same fear of the Lord, even in Jesus. Jesus is the spirit appointed Christ, the Messiah whom Isaiah prophesied would come. Listen to this description of the Messiah from Isaiah 11. He says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. See, this spirit who rests on Jesus, he is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And his delight is the fear of the Lord. And this prophecy of the Christ, it expresses the loving respect and the adoration that Jesus would have. For his father and that we display, displayed throughout the pages of the Gospels. 
It was demonstrated there. You can read it for yourself by his complete and willing submission to his will. And this this delight in the fear of the Lord, it will produce in you an all-encompassing sense of the presence of God, the majesty of God, the abundant mercy and grace of God, and the faithfulness of God. And such an awareness of God's greatness, that's what leads you to a greater dependence on and increasing responsibility to God. Your relationship with God, it will grow, as will the understanding of the priority of that relationship. And out of this comes the desire to bring every aspect of your life in line. With God's absolute perfection. But will it be for fear of punishment? If you don't. No. For it also calls forth. An unreserved commitment to God. Born. Of an increasing love for God. You. Will desire your life. To be structured. Your affairs. Your relationships ordered. Your decisions. To be in line. With God's will. You will be a man who walks with God in close fellowship. God will be at the center of your heart and your life, leading you to be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ. Now, when such a fear defines you, not only will you be blessed, a blessed and happy man, but your wife and your family will be blessed also, just as we see described here in Psalm 128. The fear of God will influence and motivate you to lead and to love your family in the way that God ordains. So if you desire this fear of the Lord that will lead to blessing for you and your family, then the question right now that should be on your mind is how do you lastly develop a fear of the Lord? We need to develop a fear of the Lord. So let's not be shallow. Let's not think that a healthy fear of the Lord is just a matter of following a few steps, right? Rather than seeing these as steps to fearing God. That's like clickbait. Misleading and exaggerated. There are no steps to fearing God. There are components. I could call them that. There are Components out of which you will come to increasingly love and trust God and gain a fearful respect for his greatness and his majesty. And those four components are these. Salvation in God. Prayer to God. Communion with God. And study of God. Let's walk through each one of those. A fear of God can only begin with salvation in God. You cannot manufacture a right and healthy fear of God apart from being born again in Jesus Christ. You can certainly fear God in an oppressive, destructive way all on your own. You don't need anything but just to live life in this world to have that kind of a fear of God. That's like the fear that the steward had in Matthew 25 takes no special work of God in your life to be afraid of God and how he might punish you for your sin. 
But the fear that brings the blessings described in Psalm 128, it is something altogether different. This fear requires the gracious work of God in you. The Spirit of God, He must bring life to your dead soul. And Jesus referred to this work of the Spirit as being born again, not physically, spiritually. No one can come to God otherwise. And when you hear that, what's the, what's the, the, what's the mind tend to go to? Whoa. If God must first work, then I'm helpless. I can't do anything. I just have to wait for him to do something. The Lord never takes that posture. Wait for me to do something in you so that you'll follow me. No, he commands you. Repent of your sins. That's what he commands. He commands you to turn from your rebellion, from your wickedness. He commands you to humble yourself before him and beg his forgiveness. Well, I don't like that idea. Of course you don't, you wretched sinner. Of course you don't. You rebel against God. What rebel wants to bow their knee? But the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings commands you to bow. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The day is coming. You need to do it now, though. Because on that day, you won't have any choice. Right now, you do. And the wise thing to do Bow your need before Almighty God. Forsake your weapons. Throw them aside. Stop your rebellion. Stop running from God. Stop thinking all these wrong thoughts about him that you've heard out there and start looking at what he says to you here. This is where he reveals himself to you. Not out there and not in here. Here. This is where you go to let God tell you what he is like. And he will gladly tell you what he's like because he doesn't desire you to perish in your sins. He wants you to come. You've got to come his way, not your way. And you come humbly and you come bowing your knee. He commands you to repent. Are you going to obey? Well, I can't obey because he's not born me again. He's not he's not chosen me. Hogwash. You come. You come because the Lord God commands you to come. Stop with all these theological excuses. If you will do that. If you will come as he commands you, he promises he will save you. He will save you. Do it because you know what you are. You're a sinner. Because you know what you deserve from God. Condemnation. But God is gracious. He is merciful. He offers you pardon for all your sins. And it's possible only because of the substitutionary death of his son on the cross. His death is the only means of your salvation. Sin demands death. And that should make every sinner cower in truly debilitating fear before Almighty God. God had already portrayed the horror of that terrible day of salvation, uh, of that day when, when the day of salvation becomes the day of judgment, right? 
You guys like watching trailers of movies, right? They whet your appetite. Here's the trailer for the Day of Judgment. The sky splits apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? It's R-rated. You don't want to live this movie. You know the guilt. Your guilt deserves death. But God has made a way for the sinner to be pardoned through Christ. So repent and believe in the only Savior that God sent. It's out of the soil of salvation in Christ that a reverent fear of God will grow in your heart. So turn now to first Peter. I want to show you something. Turn to first Peter because I want to show you how this godly fear is vitally connected to understanding the price of your salvation and that it was Christ's precious blood. First Peter chapter one, excuse me, I didn't tell you that first Peter chapter one. Follow along as I read verses 17 to 19. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Let that sink in. You get no favorites with God. He impartially judges. Are you ready for that? If you're not in Christ, you're not ready for this. But even he says, if you address as father. So he's talking to believers. Not even you get a, a pass from his impartial judgment. So listen to his advice. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He's talking to believers. Knowing why should you conduct yourself in fear? Or how will you conduct your fear yourself in fear? This is how you'll do it. If you know this, knowing You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Never allow yourself to diminish or forget the cost of your redemption. It was paid for by the blood of God's Son, no act was so terrible and so beautiful at the same time. No ransom price was more costly and yet more freely given. Can you see how this is the foundation of the fear of God? God allowed your debt of sin to be paid by no less than the death of his own son. How can we not love and fear and trust and obey and worship him? And maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, you're saying, okay, I'm a Christian. But I know I don't fear God as I need to. What should I do? You believe you were saved. 
You want to please God, but your relationship with God is superficial. And your fear of God is minimal. You know your sin is wrong. But honestly, you really don't think it's that big a deal. In your life, obedience obedience to God is really negotiable. So you love God, but you know you don't love Him as you should. So how are you to gain a more vital awareness of God in your life? Turn with me to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. It's right after the big book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 32. And look at what God says that he will do for those who are his. We find it in verse 38. 30, chapter 32, verse 38. He says, they shall be my people. I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good, for the good of their children after them. That sounds like Psalm 128. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. See, God makes something very clear for us here. His people. His people will fear him. No exception. No exception. But that fear, like their salvation. It is the work of God. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. Okay, so this fear of God is a work of God. So this leads us then to the second necessary component of a fear of God. And that is prayer to God. Prayer to God. Paul shows us that we're to ask God to grow our understanding of him and his amazing love for us. And when God opens your eyes to his greatness, to his great love for you, it will transform how you live. And so knowing this, this is what Paul told the Ephesians. He says, this is how I'm praying for you. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And later in that same letter to the Ephesians, he says, I pray that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit to grasp. See, we need God's strength to grasp this great, he says, this great love. He says, how wide, how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ. See, Paul is praying. He's asking God to do something in the lives of these Ephesian believers. And this means we need to ask God to do this in our lives. See, without his help, you'll never experience what Paul's describing here. And note that this was Paul's, it was his constant prayer. He says, I keep asking this. I keep praying this in the present tense. Do you pray that you might know God better? Do you ask God to give you wisdom, understanding, So that your understanding of God would grow deeper and wider and higher 
And wide, wider, if I already said that. You know what I mean. See, if you will do so, a wholesome fear of God will begin to grow in your life. You'll be the blessing that God wants you to be for your family. So do you feel distant from God? It's easy for us to become self-sufficient. And when that becomes true of us, when we become self-sufficient, the first thing to go in our self-sufficiency is prayer. You can't grow in your understanding of God. You can't be the blessing that God wants you to be to your family without a meaningful prayer life, men. Okay, there's two more important components, though, to this fear of God growing in you. The third component is communion with God. Our lives are increasingly fast-paced. They're filled with constant sources of distraction. We get so excited about the newest technology that comes out until we realize it's just another way that we're not going to be able to think about God anymore. One day we're all going to be walking around just in a virtual world, controlled by whatever's flowing in. See, you've got to take this. You've got to decide what you're going to allow and not allow to distract you. Talking about music, reels, podcasts, streaming media, notifications, and so on. It's not that I'm saying any of these things are bad. But when you realize how from the time you wake up until the time you fall asleep exhausted, you don't really have time to just think, ponder, meditate, consider, It makes God's instructions in Psalm 46, verse 10, all the more needful. He says there, he says, cease. And he says, be still. Know that I'm God. Take time to meditate on God as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Scripture says this. It says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, it is seen someplace in the face of Christ. Doesn't mean you just look at his face like a picture of Jesus. You look at who he is. Scripture says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. So make time to regularly reflect on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, what he is doing, what he will do. He's revealed himself through his word so that you can know him personally. You can talk to him. You can tell him whatever is on your mind. You can take every need you have to him. And as you read about him, how he acted, how he spoke, how he related to others in the gospels, notice his majesty, his graciousness, his wisdom, his compassion, his righteousness, his justice, his power. Take every opportunity To go to the cross where he died for you. Go to the empty tomb where God by his power declared him the son of God. Watch him ascend to heaven to the father's right hand. He's there right now. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He's making intercession for you. He's ruling over all things for the sake of his church. Think about the implications of all of this for the world. For people on history, on you. 
If you want to fear a God that will bless you, bless your family, then desire to know Christ more fully in this coming year. Desire to know Him like you have never known Him before. It won't happen unless you make a plan for how you're going to commune with God every day. It's it's, it can be simple changes. Get up a half an hour earlier. Find a quiet place in the house to be alone with God. Turn off your phone. Start your day focused on Christ. And then find ways to keep yourself focused on Christ throughout the day. Read His Word during your lunch break. Pray about everything throughout your day. Memorize verses so that you can mull on them in your heart while you're walking, while you're driving, while you're shopping. And you will be amazed at the impact this will have on your relationship with God. The final component necessary for a fear of God is a study of God. God has revealed himself to us in his word. Your relationship with him cannot grow deeper apart from you studying what he says about himself. Jesus said the scriptures testify about him. The more you study God's word, the greater love and reverence you will have for God. In Psalm 19, David there, he lists off what God's word does in his life. He says it restores his soul. It makes him wise. It makes it brings joy to his heart. It gives insight for living. And then right in the midst of these blessings about the word of God, he says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Do you want to know the fear of the Lord? David is telling you what will produce it. It's learning about your God from his word. And here is where you seek and find God. The Bible is the only place where God has revealed who he is, what he's doing, his concerns, his will, his intentions, his plans, his desires for you, his designs for the world that rejects him. And when you read his word, you're hearing God's voice. It's the voice of your heavenly father, your savior and your Lord. So listen, learn. Receive, believe, consider, obey, delight. He's inviting you to know him. He wants you to have a deeper, a more intimate, increasingly meaningful relationship with him. It may sound like clickbait, but it's not. There really is a secret to maximize blessings in your life. There really is a, a key element that makes every man a powerful blessing to his family. It's the fear of the Lord. And blessed is the family that is led by a man who desires, discerns, delights in and develops a fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. You say that you will impart a fear to us who seeks out, seeks you out. We can only seek you in your word. You have given us hearts and minds so that we can think. We choose what we will think on. Let us make wise choices and think upon you. Let us dwell richly on the word of God. Not to check some box, not to say that we...
what the Christian is supposed to do, but so that we might know you. And that in knowing you, we would be overwhelmed by your greatness and over your great love for us. And that would lead to this type of fear that will bless, bring blessing in our lives and into our homes. And we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.